Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's fireworks flying on the 4th of July lighting up the midnight air. It's warm summer nights trying to win a prize down at the county fair. Well, it's you, me, baby, a wild and crazy kids, free falling hard in American love. American love. It's free like an eagle soaring when we go speeding down that old highway. Head out the window. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of American Love by Hastings and Company, a singing-songwriting country duo with Ohio roots, currently pursuing their musical dreams in Nashville, Tennessee. Hastings and Company is our featured Ohio musical artist this week, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We'd love to tell you a little bit more about them and let you listen to the rest of that killer song. Speaking of killers, it's time to throw another log on the fire, campers. We've got a really disturbing mystery for you. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years writing for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Well, what's in store for us tonight, Paula? All right, Steve. Imagine you're walking to school when you come across the bodies of two women who have been bludgeoned to death beyond all recognition. And you race for all your worth to get to school to report the grisly discovery, only to find the school doors are still locked. And they're locked because your teacher and the school principal, the two women who would have opened them, haven't arrived yet. No, 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 that does not sound good. It happened in Parma, a case that will be 100 years old in a couple more years. At this point, there is little hope for justice for Miss Louise Wolf and Miss Mabel Foote, but we can do something for them. We can make sure their story isn't forgotten, at least for a little while longer. That's the least we can do. Tell us their story. Well, let's finish with what I'd started, with the discovery of their bodies. It's Thursday, February 17, 1921, about 8.30 in the morning, and three students are on their way to school, the written hour siblings, 14-year-old Edward and 16-year-old Edith, and little six-year-old Ralph Pickard. They're traveling along a desolate stretch of dirt road, bordered by woods and orchards on either side. It was called Bean Road back in the day. Modern-day motorists will know it as Ridgewood Road. Oh, okay. And they spot what looks like some bundles of discarded fabric a few feet from the road up an embankment. They move in a bit. And they see skin and hair and blood. Those bundles are bodies, two women sprawled on the icy ground. 
Their destination, a couple of one-room schoolhouses, is a quarter mile away, and they get there as fast as they can. But once they arrive, eager to report what they saw to their teachers, there's no going inside. The doors are locked. Other students are standing outside, milling about in the cold. On any other day, the students would be greeted by their teachers, Miss Wolf and Miss Foote. Their current classrooms are temporary structures. A new school is under construction across the street. So the students race over there to find an adult, and they come across a carpenter, Frank Owen. The students tell him of their discovery, and he rushes back with them to Bean Road. He probably already knows what's coming since the school was locked. So even though the women were unrecognizable, he recognized them, especially because Louise Wolf is his sister-in-law. He's married to her sister, Lottie. A police arrive at the scene, and they make note of what they see. Louise Wolf is lying face down on a path along the embankment. Her purse was tucked beneath her body. One shoe was on, one off. Her jewelry was untouched. Mabel Foote was farther off the road, near a fence that bordered an orchard. She was on her back, her arms stretched out above her head, her hands clenched tight. Her purse lay on the ground, undisturbed. As with Louise, she also still had her jewelry. A black travel bag that contained some extra clothes, however, was open, and its contents were scattered in the icy mud. That's weird. An umbrella lay near her body, and it was bent with the tip broke off. So the day before, school had let out at 3.30 p.m., but Louise and Mabel had lingered late to grade papers and clean the classrooms. A local resident saw them lock up and leave the school at 5 p.m. They always left together and walked about two miles to catch the streetcar at the intersection of Bean and State Roads. That's right where Parma City Hall is today. It was drizzling when they left school. Within an hour, there would be a hard, cold rain. Now, Bean was a lightly traveled dirt road, the kind that easily turned into muck. So there was the steep embankment on both sides of the road, and there was a path that allowed pedestrians to climb up the embankment to the edge of the woods, where a footpath parallel to the street would keep them out of the muddy road. And there was a fence along this path made up of wooden posts and strung with wire. There were no houses in this immediate area. It was an isolated route. In in February, darkness fell before evening. So it's no surprise that anything that would have happened here would have remained concealed until daylight. But in the daylight, detectives could read the forensics of the environment. And it tells a chilling story covering a battlefield that stretched for 100 yards or more. The attack came at 5.15 p.m. Police know this because Mabel Foote's watch was found a few feet from her body, broken and frozen at that moment in time. The weapon, they soon discovered, was a section of fence post. It gave itself away because it was covered in blood, as well as dark hair from Louise and light hair from Mabel. And the women had put up a fight. Their knuckles were bruised, bits of skin were under their nails, Heavy footprints in the mud indicated they had been scrambling desperately over a large area of ground. Parma Police Chief Frank Smith couldn't say, but he's thinking if it were two men, they probably would have put the women down much easier than the evidence suggested. I could imagine that, you know, one of them probably trying to 
attacked the attacker while he was going after the one woman. So they just kept going back trying to fight. That's exactly what happened. Um, It appeared the women were probably beginning their ascent from the road to the higher elevation footpath when the assailant made his move. And as he beat one woman, the other tried to help by using sticks and stones and no doubt that broken umbrella. And this was obvious from the debris that lay about. At the top of the embankment, bodies had crashed into the fence, posts were broken, and the ground was matted down from a a wrestling match. Now, a bloody trail from Mabel's body led to her open overnight case, and detectives came to believe that Mabel had regained consciousness long enough to crawl to the case, remove a nightgown, and wipe the blood from her face. But she clearly had no strength to do more. She either lost consciousness again, or she lay there until the cold claimed her. Now, the murderer could be tracked for a bit by his footprints. It appeared he skittered back down the embankment to the roadbed and ran several hundred yards before ducking into the woods on the opposite side. Police brought in German shepherds to try to pick up a scent that day, but the trail was a day old. It had been diluted by rain and wind. The weather had destroyed all hope for some residual scent to guide them. So who killed these women and why? Neither had been sexually assaulted. Neither had been robbed. Neither seemed to have any enemies. They were beloved school teachers. Neither were involved in romantic affairs that might have gone bad. Mabel was in her first year of teaching. She was a 24-year-old graduate of Baldwin-Wallace College in Berea. She still lived with her parents and siblings in Brooklyn Heights. Now, her dream was to begin missionary work in a couple of years. The teaching job was to offer some much-needed experience. Mabel's parents hadn't reported her missing the night before because it wasn't unusual for her to spend the night with her cousin, Mary Shankford, and they presumed she had done so again. And with a nightgown in her case, it certainly seemed that was her intention. Louise Wolfe was 38 years old. She taught the second of two classrooms at the school, but she was also the principal. She shared an apartment with a female roommate. Her childhood was a sad one. Both of her parents died unexpectedly when she was young, and she and her four siblings all had to be separated and sent to live with various relatives or adopted into other families. You were saying that this is almost 100 years old. This is about the time where women started going out on their own and doing their own thing. Yeah, and this is leading up to the Depression, so yeah. it's definitely a period where people need to be working and right. you know, doing what they can. So, And school teachers, you know, they always needed female school teachers. Right. I, I read uh, The Devil in the White City, and they were talking about, that was about H.H. H. Holmes, and they were talking about, you know, this was a time where women, you know, kind of ventured out on their own and did their own thing. A lot of them were coming from, you know, farm towns and... So it's interesting that this falls in that time period. Yeah. Well, police had, they had plenty of help looking for suspects. They were joined by a posse of some 200 farmers that came out with them scouring the countryside. Charles Foote, Mabel's uncle, he believed killers like, like to return to the scene of the crime. He spent night after night tramping through the woods with a flashlight, hoping to spot the culprit. 
and there were plenty of suspects at first. Resident Gladys Green told police she saw two bareheaded men walking rapidly along Ridge Road a few hundred feet from where the bodies were found on the night before. Is that another way of saying bald? Bareheaded means they weren't wearing hats. Hats. Most men wore hats back then. Okay. A motorist reported seeing three men, one on a motorcycle and two in a sidecar, also near the scene about the time of the murder. He said the motorcycle stopped and the two men in the sidecar jumped out and went in the direction of where the bodies were found. But he moved on and didn't look to see where they had went. Two men who lived in the neighborhood were also seriously considered. They had no alibi for the time of the crime, but they had no marks on their faces or hands, and detectives were positive Mabel and Louise had left their mark. Parma Township trustee J.D. Loader said he saw two strange men around his house the night of the murder with mud-spattered clothing. Students told police they heard Mabel and Louise talking about a stranger Mabel had met along Bean Road the day before the murder, it seemed harmless. He had asked where he could catch the streetcar, and the kids hadn't heard anything more about what was said. A woman who lived elsewhere in the township said a strange man had been peeking at her windows the day before the killings, and he carried a club. In some cases, men in the town, they recognized themselves in stories that were circulating, and they hurried forward, identified themselves, offered fingerprints, and gave alibis. Police were talking to farmhands, laborers. They questioned every motorman and streetcar operator about potential passengers they might have picked up that night. The motive, though, nobody could figure out a motive. They finally just announced, this killer just must be someone who's insane, someone who's just out of his mind and killing for the sake of killing. And Cleveland had other beating deaths of women that were unsolved, notably Gretchen Brandt and Elsie Kreinbring, both in the fall of 1918. At the time, neither of those cases had been solved. So were Louise and Mabel maybe two more victims of that same killer? But they also found it curious that while everything pointed to the idea that the killer had stalked Louise and Mabel and knew their movements and when to strike, that he hadn't brought a weapon. He used a fence post. That was a weapon of opportunity, not premeditation. Well, local citizens thought the search was going too slowly. They set up a fund to hire private detectives to help with the case, and they contributed to a reward fund for information. It started out with $500, and less than a week it grew to $10,000. Oh, that is a lot back then. These people loved their teachers. And more than once, police thought they finally had their man in custody. On February 20. Three days after the attack, Cuyahoga County Sheriff C.B. Stannard announced an arrest was imminent. He said they found a man, hatless and coatless, wandering about aimlessly with scratches on his face and hands. The suspect insisted the scratches happened while he was being robbed of his coat and hat in Toledo a few days earlier. They put him in the county jail and later said he appeared to be imbalanced and let him go. In April, police received a letter from someone claiming to have witnessed the murders. They followed the letter to its author, a 20-year-old Arthur Elenfeld, who then confessed to the crime. He said when he saw the women coming toward him, he opened his overcoat and exposed himself. He said Louise screamed at him to go away, called him a nasty thing, and struck him. And he became furious, grabbed a tree limb, and attacked her. When Mabel came to her defense, he attacked her 
and back and forth until they were both down. But all the details he relied on had been reported in the media, and the details of his story changed in each retelling. Authorities came to believe he'd made it all up. He was found criminally insane by a jury of six men and six women in common police court and was committed to Lima State Hospital. And police kept looking. Next up, investigators were hopeful again when a man named Friend Gatling claimed responsibility in 1923. He had a criminal record and had been arrested for the axe murder of Harry Keim, a Cleveland hardware store owner and bootlegger. But he was found to be insane and taken to Lima State Hospital, and police said his confession was another false lead. Jeez. So in 1927, police announced they made another arrest, this time a man from Illyria who had lived in Parma at the time of the murders, and they were confident the case was going to be solved. But they never identified that man, and that story just faded into obscurity. Louise and Mabel were laid to rest four days after their deaths. Mabel's service was held at the Pearl Road Methodist Church. She was interred in her family's private cemetery. A year after her death, a mission school in Nanking, China, was named for her, since it had been her intent to do that kind of work in another oh, year or two. Okay. Services for Louise were held at a private home. Twelve years later, a memorial fountain was erected in the memory of both women in a local Parma park. In recent decades, this case has been covered by a couple of books and at least one radio show. Modern amateur sleuths have offered new suggestions, including one author who thinks Mabel Foote was aware of some kind of embezzlement for which she was attacked and evidence taken from her travel bag. And on websleuth.com, an unnamed person who said Louise Wolfe was her grandmother's aunt shared some family lore. The accepted theory within the family involved an understanding that there was a nearby monastery known at the time for housing the mentally insane. There were reports of mentally deranged men from this place dressing like monks and traveling the area on foot. They believed the attack may have started as a robbery or rape attempt that escalated and just became messy and caused the attacker to flee. You know, I would like to think that the motive was sexual assault, but these two beat the crap out of them. That, the, and I think that was the point of the family. Maybe it probably started, that was the killer's intent. Right. But those women just put up too much mm, of a fight. Good for them. If you're going to go out, go out fighting, that's Absolutely. for sure. And you know what? Let's hear from uh, tonight's armchair detective. See what they think. I agree. Tonight we have with us Kelly Nyergis, a stay-at-home mom and Ohio Mysteries listener from Aurora. Hi, Kelly. Hi. And also with us, we have her daughter, Evie. Evie's going to be weighing in on, on some of this case as well. Hi, Evie. Hi. Kelly, I've, I got to ask, I mean, the one thing that sticks out in my mind about this case is just the seeming lack of a motive. I mean, did you come up with one? Well, what we were thinking um, here when we listened was that it was uh, possibly a hate crime because uh, with the the teacher, the Louisa Wolf, she was 
living with another woman and maybe she was a lesbian and that maybe possibly someone didn't like that. And because there was, there was no, nothing stolen and she was beaten so severely. I came across that idea online before. Is that where you saw a reference to that? I did. I looked in an online article about the case. And what I had noticed was what I felt was maybe Mabel uh, was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And maybe because she was she was so young and she was had plans to go and do missionary work. And Louisa was older and she was living with another woman named Effie Buffel from what I found. And I was curious as to maybe if it was someone from Effie's family or someone that they knew. So maybe Louise was actually the target. Yes. And, you know, I guess part of me thinks back in that day, if you're a single woman teaching, I mean, you're probably not teaching unless you're a single woman, because I know that they frowned or even outright forbade married women to teach. Um, And you don't want to live alone. Surely you're going to be living with another woman. It doesn't mean you're gay. What are your thoughts on that? Well, and from what I was reading in the article, they said um, a lot of women that that were gay went into that profession because then they could live their life and have a full life with a partner and just be able to have a normal life and be able to support themselves, too. I could see that. The job becomes the beard. You know, it's like we're doing something and nobody will really pay attention to what we're doing. So if Louise was targeted, do you think the killer's intention was to kill? Well, I don't know, because he he took, and I I was thinking that maybe he was just going to go and maybe talk to them or just talk to her, and then it just all of a sudden maybe it went out of control, and he just grabbed whatever he could, and maybe they started screaming, or maybe they got into a heated argument and he just got angry and maybe he couldn't control his rage and he just did it right there, just killed him. Do you think you're saying he, do you think given the circumstances and what we know of the crime scene that it would have had been a man? Oh, I would. Yes. Because I mean, it, they just, just the severe, the severity of the breaks and the, the face. And they said there was hair on the fence post it was, it was just, they just severely just were beaten. I just can't imagine a woman being able to do that. And I can't imagine that they wouldn't have been able to, you know, I could see they wouldn't be able to stop a man, but maybe they could have stopped a woman. Yeah. A woman taking on two of them at the same time. That, that would yeah. have been a lot. But also they said it was really muddy. And so it'd be easy to lose your footing. And if you're fighting for your life in in mud, they said that they couldn't even get the cars to get them out from the article that I read also on top of, of your the, the podcast. You know, I mean, it was just sort of a, a bad place for them to be. I didn't even realize that. So they actually had to physically carry them away from the crime scene because they couldn't get cars down that road. That's what it said. Yes. Got it. All right. Any other ideas of motives? Unless it was just a random, you know, they were saying just like the lunatics that were in asylums and or just some drifter, like you said about how there were other women that were beaten to death. But I I still think it I just have a feeling in my mind it, it was a hate crime. 
You know, I, I think one of the things that, if you can chuckle at something like this, was that after this happened, everybody came out with a story about a weirdo who was in their yard the previous day. You know, it's like, yes. oh, yeah, there was a guy covered in mud carrying a club out my door. And, oh, yeah, I saw two men that were acting crazy outside my window. And it's like, what, <laughs> why was everybody running into all? So uh, is it likely that there was a crazy person or are we just hoping that only a crazy person could do this? I guess maybe just hoping that only a crazy person would want to do that to someone because it was so vicious. It was just, and and that's the thing they they didn't steal anything. They just they just murdered them. Huh. It was someone who was very cruel and angry. I would think. Yeah. If Louise was gay, who might have known about that? I mean, do you think this could have somehow originated with a student? maybe a, a parent was upset about it or maybe her her live-in roommate's family might have been upset about something. Let me ask you, Evie, this case started because three kids are walking to school when they come across this scene. They don't even recognize these women as their teachers. You're still a teenager, right? Yeah. How would you have reacted to something like that? Honestly, I don't know. Just with how gruesome the scene scene seemed, it sounds like something from a horror movie almost. It really does. And, you know, back in those days, those kids couldn't pull out a cell phone and and give a shout out for help. They had to run to -hmm. the school to, to get help. I think just kind of seeing how gruesome people can be would be something that would be hard to forget and just kind of, it, it seems like something you you would see it and you'd never be able to forget it. Yeah, but I just, some of these cases really touch me and I'm like, I don't want them to be forgotten just because they're 100 years old. Right. These These women, you know, really affected a community and... Well, did. the way the community rose up around to try to help them, too, and find out who did it, that speaks volumes of who they were and how they were felt by their community as well. It really did. It really did. Well, thank you, ladies, so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for tonight, campers. Remember... You can always find photos, news clippings, links, and more associated with each and every episode at our website, ohiomysteries.com. All right, so this might be a great time to remind you that while our podcast is always going to be free, if you'd like to support our effort, you can find links to our Patreon and our PayPal on our website. You'll notice that we don't have any sponsors. All of our support comes from people like you. And now it's time to share a little more about our musical artist of the week. We love promoting Ohio's musical talent, and tonight would like to tell you a little bit more about Hasting and Company. Hasting, that would be Kate Hasting, originally from New Carlisle, Ohio, and Company, that would be Josh Beal, originally from Wisconsin. The pair are both farm-raised kids from the Midwest. They met at a dive in Nashville and began writing together and released their debut album, Country Music, in 2013. So check out their website, hastingco.com, 
and under the tour link, you can find their schedule. There are a handful of performances in Ohio this summer. Now, their most recent release, American Love, is the song we're featuring tonight. It was inspired by the true but tragic tale of Kate Hastings' parents. They were high school sweethearts who lived an American love story at their farm in Dayton, Ohio, before a car accident took the life of Kate's dad and left her mom fighting for her life. We've added this song to our playlist on Spotify. But for right now, settle back and we'll play that song in the entirety for you right now. Here's American Love by Hastings and Company. And we'll see you right back here next week for a brand new Ohio mystery. It's warm summer nights trying to win a prize down at the county fair. Well, it's you and me, baby, young, wild, and crazy kids. Free falling hard in American love. American love. It's free like an eagle soaring when we go speeding down that old highway. Head out the window just to feel the window sun shining on your face. And it's singing along at the top of our lungs The born in the USA It's American love Show. Ten thousand light of skies on fire Dancing when they play our song And it's the freedom I feel The kisses you still Wrapped up in your strong American love
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.